Have a seat. Good morning. Do you know how happy I am to see you on Memorial Day weekend? That you're here, that you're not at the lake. I mean, it's perfect outside and you're here to worship God today and I'm really thankful. Hey, if you don't know me, my name is JT. I'm a pastor here at Freshwater Church. So thankful that you're here today. Um, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, if you haven't been with us, we have been walking through the gospel of John verse by verse and we are going to um, be in John chapter 11 today. Um, so if you haven't been here in a while or if you're new um, today, um, this is an announcement for the end, but I just as a reminder, do, do you know what this is the last week of? It's our last week being here. Uh, yeah, it's our last week being at Williams for the next two months. If, if you haven't heard this yet already, they had to, the, there's cracks in the walls. Yeah, the school's a year old and there's cracks in the walls from when they, I guess, didn't build it right or something, something wasn't done right. I don't know whose fault it was. We're, we're not going to worry about all that. But um, for the next two months, they're going to be fixing that. And they thought we could stay here, but they're, they're going to have to bring down the ceilings and the whole thing. And so it's going to be construction zone. So we're going to be out of the building for about the next two months. Um, they have to have it done for next school year. So I'm assured that it'll only be two months and then we'll be back in here in August. So starting next Sunday, we won't be in, in here anymore. Um, we'll be back at um, Freeway for the next two months and then we'll come right back here in August. And I was talking with uh, Matt and Noah before the service. I, I know it probably hasn't worked this way for everybody in the room, but um, when we moved to Freeway, it took a while for that to feel kind of like our place for me. Um, and I don't know that Freeway ever really felt like fully on home to me, um, but I really appreciate Freeway. I appreciate the, the access that we have there and where it is. It's on the north side of Springfield. I'm really thankful for it. But for me, I, I don't know about you, but for me, just in the first month and a half or two that we've been here, this has already started to feel like home again. Like this is the place that we're supposed to be. And so that's a really cool feeling. So I hate to leave it, but it'll make us excited when we get to come back. Right, Larry? We're going to be fired up in, in August when we get to come back here. And so if you're new today and you don't know where Freeway is, we can tell you, ask anybody, but it's really just down Kearney Street down there at the bottom of the hill. Um, and so be looking out for that. With that, let me just go ahead and jump in today. Um, I thought long and hard about my sermon this week. It, it was a different week for me. Um, I didn't even actually start writing this sermon until Thursday, which if you knew my, what I normally do, I start studying on Monday and I usually start writing um, long before Thursday. Um, but I didn't start writing it before Thursday because as I read this portion of John 11 over and over, as I prayed about it and I talked to God about it, um, every, every angle I took at it, every way I was pursuing it just didn't feel right. I just didn't have any peace with it whatsoever. And you may have heard me say this before if you become a freshwater for any amount of time. I never, ever want to give it, get up here and just give a good speech. Like, I'm terrified that of like coming up here and preaching just under my own power, just preaching something that sounds good, but it's not from the Lord. I want to be up here and I want to preach the gospel empowered by the Holy Spirit or I shouldn't be up here doing it. Amen? Because in the end, by, by the end of the week this week, no one's going to remember any of the words I actually said. Is that not true? You might remember, have a kind of a recollection, but in a month from now, three months from now, you're not going to remember anything I said. The only thing that's going to stand is the word of God. And God, even on my absolute worst weeks, the Holy Spirit has the, has the power to sanctify you in ways I couldn't even anticipate when I feel like I've absolutely blown it. And so this week was one of those weeks where I'm like, this just does, doesn't feel like what I'm supposed to do. I didn't hear the audible voice of God. I just had no peace about the sermon this week. So as I prayed over the text, there were things that came to me. That there was notes that I took. There was different themes that I could forth. There was, there was different practical applications I knew I could bring out of the text. But, but they, again, they just didn't feel right. And then on Thursday morning, I was praying. I mean, I was like, I was like praying like, Lord, 
I don't, I don't know. I went on a walk with my dog Wednesday evening, like just like thinking, like praying. I, I don't know. I'm stuck on this. And then Thursday morning I was praying and it just hit, like, it hit me like a lightning bolt, honestly. And there was a word and it was, it was worship. Just that's it. Worship. Now here's the thing. We want to worship God in every text in scripture, right? Like, yes and amen. Every text we want to, to worship God. I, I say this to guys I disciple. We never want to treat this book like a textbook, like something that is just here to, to study. This is how we find God, through the Holy Spirit, through God working through the Word of God. We go to the Word of God to encounter God. That's what we're trying to do. We encounter God in worship, and then He reveals to us who He is through His Word, and then the Holy Spirit changes us through that. So we always want to worship in the Word of God. And if going into the Word of God is never a worshipful experience for you, listen, there's something that's, that's a little bit off. There's something that wrong. But listen, I'm not telling you, I'm not here to tell you, hey, you're wrong. I'm saying if that's the case for you, that the word of God never comes alive in worship to God, it drives you to worship, talk with someone about it. This is not a condemnation thing. This is like, God wants more for you than just treating this thing like a textbook that you're supposed to memorize. And write. Like God wants to draw you into who he is through his, his word. So if it's not that for you, talk with someone, walk through discipleship with someone so that you might learn how to worship God through his word, not just read it, but that's not even my point today. My point today is this text that we're going to be in today is not one that just initially drives you like, oh, I want to worship God. Now, last week, if you weren't here last week, we, in John 11, we walked through the text where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, that's a text that'll make you worship, right? He comes to the tomb, and in three words, he calls out, Lazarus, come out. And he comes back from the dead to new life. And we talked about last week, what a beautiful reflection of what Jesus Christ did for us as the resurrection in life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and Jesus called out to us, come out. And we went from death to life. Amen? Amen. That, that'll drive you to worship. That thing will preach, right? But, but this week, this week, the passage this week is really just kind of about betrayal, it's about ugliness, about people taking the, the raising of Lazarus, one of the greatest things that God has ever done, through a Messiah, by the way, that they had been waiting for centuries for, maybe even more than a millennia for, and making it a picture of their own ugliness, of their sinfulness, of their evil. In actuality, it's kind of an ugly passage. Even so, through it, like I said before, I came up with some practical applications like I normally do, some, that speak, some things that speak into our everyday lives through a passage like this. Um, and as I got to where I was going to write them, to prepare them, again, it just didn't feel right. I normally, I normally am a pastor that wants to preach the Word of God first and the glory of God first, but it gets pretty practical. But I don't think I'm supposed to preach practical this week, just so you know. I don't think this, this sermon's going to be real practical. I think what I'm supposed to do is just point you to the majesty to the beauty, to the sovereignty, to the immeasurable grace, and this the unshakable love of God so that you might be drawn into worship. That's it. And then leave the practical side to the work of the Holy Spirit that's within you if you're a believer in here today. I just want us together this week to watch God take something so ugly, listen, so insidious, something straight from hell and turn it into one of the most beautiful things in all of creation. So that we might just marvel this week, we might just marvel at our God who is holy, holy, holy. With that, let's jump into our text today. In John 11, we're gonna start in verse 45. John 11, verse 45. And we're just gonna read the first two verses to start off. 
45 says this, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So stop right there. We're going to jump into the whole text as a whole after this, but it starts with many of the Jews, therefore, and I know you've heard me say this way too many times, but whenever you come come into scripture and it says, therefore, what do you need to do? See what it's there for, right? A cheesy little thing, but you remember it, right? Because that when, it, when the scripture says, therefore, it means if you're going to understand what is about to be said, you've got to understand what came before. And he's saying, therefore, because of what came before, many of the Jews believed. And what happened last week is what I just referenced. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He came to his sisters, Mary and Martha, and he came to his disciples and said, what I'm about to do, the reason this is happening, the reason Lazarus died is you're going to see the glory of the father and the glory of the son. I'm going to show you that I am the resurrection and the life. And through, many, and through that, many of you are going to believe. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus did exactly what he said he was going to do. And many of the Jews believed. And it's amazing. But not all of them did. Right? Not all of them did. Others of them ran to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, to tell them what happened. And I want you to see that the way that John wrote this They weren't just sharing the news with the Pharisees. John is laying out that there is two different groups here, right? The ones who believe and follow Jesus Christ and the ones who run off to tell the Pharisees. Listen, church, by this time, everybody knows the Pharisees are against Jesus Christ. Like like everybody knows that they've been trying to arrest him but couldn't. So this is not like they're just running off to tell the religious leaders. Now, it would make sense they would run to tell the Pharisees because of all of the different sects of religious leaders. The Pharisees were typically the ones that would be the leaders in the synagogue. They would be the public teachers. They would be the scribes. So they were a, a more easily accessible sect of religious leaders. But they weren't doing this just to go talk to them. They were going to tell them what Jesus Christ had done. So then the Pharisees take the news to the Sanhedrin. And if you don't know what the Sanhedrin is, the Sanhedrin was a group of about 70 men, and it was kind of the, the, the religious ruling party over all of Israel. Now, they were under the authority of Rome because Rome had conquered them, but Rome c- kind of gave them a lot of auton- autonomy when it came to running their country. And so the Sanhedrin was the ruling body of about, again, 70 people. And the Pharisees were, were an easy way to put this, were just basically a religious party. And they weren't the dominant religious party, religious sects. They were religious leaders, but they were a very loud but minority religious party when it came to the Sanhedrin. The people who really kind of ran the Sanhedrin were the Sadducees because the high priest was a Sadducee. We're going to talk about him in just a minute, Caiaphas. So the Caiaphas was a Sadducee, and most of the chief priests would come from the family or from the circle of the high priest who Caiaphas happened to be a Sadducee. So the Sadducees were actually the ones who had most of the power over Israel. And you can think of his chief priests, if you think of the, the high priest as kind of the executive branch of their little religious government, the, the chief priest would have kind of been the legislative branch. They kind of helped make and, and, and hold, up, hold everybody accountable to the law. In this case, it would have been the laws of God and the traditional laws. But it was heavenly, the, the Sanhedrin was heavily influenced by the high priest and the Sadducees. And if you don't know any other story, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not fans of each other. They didn't tend to get along very well. But there was one thing they agreed on. You probably know what that is, right? They agreed on that they were not a fan of Jesus at all. That united them. The fact that they thought Jesus was a problem. So after hearing about the raising of Lazarus, the Pharisees take this news immediately to the Sanhedrin, to the high priest, to that council. And that's what we're going to pick it up in verse 47. So look at John 11. John 11, verse 47. 
So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children of God who are scattered abroad, meaning it was not going to be just for the Jews, but for more than just them. So from that day on, they made plans to put him, Jesus, to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region of the, near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Ephraim was about 12 miles away from Jerusalem because Jesus didn't want to go too far because he's about to come back for the Passover and he'll never leave Jerusalem again. As I said a couple weeks ago, Jesus is now on his path towards the cross. If you remember the ruling body, the Sanhedrin had been embarrassed. Jesus had, um, not long before this, healed a man that had been blind from birth. And people didn't get healed from blindness, blindness, much more being healed from blindness from birth. And so they brought this guy in and questioned him, and they basically called him a liar. They didn't think it was true. So I don't know if you remember what happened. They questioned this guy, didn't think this could possibly be true. So they went to his parents' house. They asked people, hey, who is this guy? And his parents were like, yeah, this is the guy. And other people gave testimony like, yeah, I don't know what happened, but this is the guy who was born blind, the guy that would beg, the guy that would be at the pool. And his parents were like, yeah, this is our son. We don't know exactly what happened, but he was blind, and now he can see. And so they were embarrassed. They called this guy basically a liar, and that would have shamed them because they came back and they found out from everyone that this really happened. So if you notice this time in the passage, they're not even questioning whether this actually happened. They don't even seem to be questioning whether Lazarus went from death to life, which is crazy in itself. They seem to believe it actually happened, that Jesus does miracles, that he really does them, and this is one of the biggest. But if you notice before, like with the guy with the blind guy, with, with the, the lame person that he healed, the other miracles that he's done, once again, they don't marvel at this. They don't, they don't worship God because of this impossible thing that just happened, they, and they certainly don't change their minds about Christ. What do they do? They give in to fear. They are afraid. They're afraid that if they let Jesus continue to do things like, we can't continue to let him do things like heal the sick, and, and, and heal the lepers. This is the kind of things that they want to stop, right? We, we, can't, we can't let him heal the lame and the blind anymore. We, we can't let him keep, continue to show such deep love for sinners and for the poor and for the needy. And we, li- we literally can't let him keep on bringing people back from, from, from death into life. Or people might start believing in him as the Messiah. That, this is what they're afraid of. And if that happens... If they actually start to believe he's the Messiah, that, that they're afraid they might start to lose their positions of power. If you've ever wanted to see what we talked about last week play out, this is it. Last week we talked about that without God, without Christ, we are dead. We are spiritually dead without him. If you want to see evidence of what that looks like, this is it right here. Jesus is moving in such power that they are afraid people will believe in him as the Messiah but it doesn't even seem to make them consider the evidence pointing to the fact that it's actually true. That they are a dead church. 
at least the majority of them are spiritually dead. We're going to find out later in Acts that some of them do come to believe. Some of the priests come to believe in Jesus Christ. So it's not like none of them did, but the ones that are leading them, they are dead and they are afraid. They're afraid of losing their power, their positions, their respect. And hear me, here's a big one. Maybe the thing they're most afraid of is losing their country. Now, to be fair, if you remember, at this time, a lot of the people that, that thought of the Messiah, that, that thought of the Christ, they thought of him as a political figure, right? Remember talking about that? That they thought he was going to be some sort of conquering king that would conquer their enemies? And again, once again, Rome has ruled over Israel right now. They have conquered Israel. So they, they want their Messiah to come and be a conqueror. So there is a legitimate fear that if, the, if they think that Jesus is the Messiah, they're going to make him who they think he wanted him to be, and they're going to rise up and revolt against Rome. And it not only will take the power of these men, but it could potentially destroy Israel. That's not a completely unfounded fear. But that fear is ugly. It might make it more ugly. And I don't know if you know why. Here's why that fear of them being so afraid of Rome and so afraid that they're going to think Jesus is the Messiah and rise up and cause a revolt. This is why this is so ugly. In the Old Testament, one of Israel's, and in particular Israel's leaders' greatest sins was not trusting God when their enemies were at hand. It happened over and over again. God would send them prophets. He would give them prophecies, telling them again and again, do not trust Syria. Do not place your trust in Egypt. Do not place your trust in the countries around you. Do not fear them. Do not trust their false gods. Do not trust their false idols. Do not trust their pagan gods. And and don't place your faith in your own politics to, to work with these nations or your own wealth or your own power or cleverness. Do not be afraid of the enemies that are around you, for I am stronger than they are. Trust me. Place your faith and hope in me, and I will protect you. I will take care of you. As he says in the Old Testament, I will give you the land flowing with milk and honey, and you will thrive in me. But time and time again in the Old Testament, we saw them place their faith and their hope in pagan nations, pagan gods, false idols, their enemies, their money, their positions, and in their power. So instead of having a healthy fear of God, right? That, that phrase in the Old Testament that's there a lot, fear of God, that actually has some fear in it because he's God and he's all powerful and he's holy, but also just this awe and respect that comes with following God. Instead of having a healthy fear of God, they had a damning fear of losing their positions. And these unfaithful, fearful, sinful men, I would say evil men, led their country into absolute disaster. They brought God's wrath for their sin and faithlessness down on their own heads. And hear me, church, I want you to hear this. It was deserved. It was deserved. I I know for a lot of us, it's hard to see God's wrath and judgment poured out, unleashed. but, But hear me, it was deserved and just. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 35, 15. Do you have the slides over there? Perfect. Jeremiah 35, 15 says this. I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently saying, turn now every one of you from his evil way and amend your deeds and do not go after other gods to serve them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to you and your fathers, but you did not incline your ear or listen to me. We see in passages like this that God doesn't want to destroy his people. He doesn't want to destroy the country that he's given to them. Jeremiah alone, this is one prophet, Jeremiah alone warned them for 23 years. 
And he was just one prophet of a dozen prophets that warned them again and again and again. Think of the unbelievable grace, the unbelievable patience of God. For a quarter century, just Jeremiah alone warned them what was going to happen and that God was going to act if they did not turn away and repent of their sin. The prophet Ezekiel shows us the heart of God in this. In Ezekiel 18.32, we got that one? Ezekiel 18.32 says this, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and what? Live. Isn't that what Christ has been saying about our sin too? Like he's saying to them, I'm the light of life. Turn to me and live. I will give you life. This is what God wanted. God has not changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He's not a different God. God is the same. He wants us to have life in him. He declares it in the Old Testament. He declares it in the New Testament. Turn from your sin and live. God doesn't want to destroy his people. He doesn't want to destroy the country that he gave him. Jeremiah, again, Jeremiah warned them again and again. God has no desire in bringing judgment and death. No, he wants his people to turn from their sin and live. Listen, live in the joys of his protection and love. That's what he promised them again and again and again. But hard hearts and entrenched sin and the evil of pride and the evil of selfishness and the evil of, listen, the evil of fear is a powerful thing. So Jeremiah goes on to say this in Jeremiah 35, 17. Therefore, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I have pronounced against them because I have spoken to them and they have not listened. I have called to them and they have not answered. If you don't know what happened, because of Israel's sin, really so much of the blame is laid because of the leadership of these evil men, something terrible fell on Israel. Not long after this, Babylon comes in and conquers the country and destroys it. The people are taken away in in exile and captivity. And for 70 years, the land of Israel, the land given to God so that they might thrive and grow and enjoy his presence and protection with him because that was God's goal. Come to me, I'll protect you. You will thrive. You'll have everything you need. The land that he gave them so that they could experience that with him was destroyed and it was taken away. For God will by no means let sin like this, evil like this, go unpunished. Because what kind of God would he really be if he was not a God of justice? If he just turned the cheek, if he just looked the other way when evil was being done to his people and by his people. All of that being said, why am I saying all this? Because these men, these men leading the Sanhedrin in the time of Jesus are responsible for leading their people for leading their country, to teach them to love God with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their strength. That's what we call in the Old Testament the Shema. It was supposed to be the number one thing. Put it before your eyes at all times to lead them to love God with all their heart, their soul, their mind, to know the scriptures, to learn from their past, and to lead them to the glory of God. That's their job. But do you see that they're doing the exact same thing that their fathers did? They're leading their people in the exact same way that their fathers did before. They love their positions, they love their power, and they fear their enemies more than they fear God. And their idols may not, for these religious men, may not be foreign gods, 
But like us now, they're worshiping the things that they have. They're worshiping the creation instead of the creator. They're holding on tighter to the things that they have, that they own, their positions, their country, much stronger than they're holding on to God. So much so that they're leading their people into a, an evil that I will call far greater, a far worse horror than the temporary fall of their nation in the prophet's time. Their evil is so great that they're leading their people to kill the son of God himself. I just want you to think about that for a second. We think of Jesus, we know the story, but Jesus is holy. Everything that's good and right and perfect and lovely and worth worthy of worship, Jesus is the opposite of evil in every way. And what they're saying is we need to murder him. They might not know it, but what they're calling their people to do is murder God who came down out of glory, came down out of, humbly, out of heaven to humbly serve them and to save them. To destroy holiness. What's more deserving of wrath than that? What's more deserving of destruction and hell than that? And then in verse 49, Caiaphas, the high priest, their leader, says what in my opinion is one of the most evil and one of the most beautiful things ever uttered by a man. Is that a bold statement? I think it's the most evil and the most beautiful thing ever said. You see this guy's attitude right from the start. He says in verse 49, if you're looking at it, he says, you all know nothing at all, showing just how arrogant he really is. Do you, you realize he's talking to the quote unquote smartest people in all of Israel, the most learned people in all of Israel, and he basically says, you idiots, you fools, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. The man given ultimate spiritual authority over all of Israel should have been the first to see who Christ really is. But instead of leading them to worship him, he's leading them in to murdering him. Murdering, again, the most precious, holy, beautiful thing in all of creation, the Son of God. One more time, church, what is more deserving of God's wrath than that? What is more evil than that? What could possibly be a bigger sign that Israel, at least amongst the leaders, had become rotten to its core? And probably, hey, deserves to be destroyed. Yet the words of Exodus from the prophet of prophets, Moses, comes to mind. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Church, our God, so boundless in mercy, so, so immeasurable in his grace, so slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Our God who is so faithful that he is already pointing us to his plan of redemption the moment we fell in the Garden of Eden. Our God who is so sovereign that over all of the, all of the years, all of the centuries, all of the millennia was protecting his remnant so that they could be at the right place at the right time when Jesus was ready to come so that his plan might come to fruition, who even was using the 
the rebellious thoughts, the rebellious leader and evil leadership of a rebellious high priest who just spewed forth maybe the most evil thing, the most vile thing that's ever been said so that through his ugliness, he might give us a prophecy. Through all of that, he might give us a promise of the most beautiful thing in history. That it is better that one man should perish than all should perish. What this man meant for evil, God meant for unbelievable good. A good so good that sometimes it's hard for me to understand, fully wrap my mind around just how good this news really is. Church, can I, can I ask you, if you're honest with yourself, where are you placing your worship? Where does your worship really go most of the time? These men place their worship in all the wrong things. Like in their ancient past, and it should have brought absolute disaster on them. Yet in the midst of their evil, in the midst of their depravity, their unthinkable sin, God was there even with them, making a promise. He was showing them what true faithfulness and love actually looks like. He was declaring to them why he is so worthy of worship, even if they, in that moment, couldn't see it. Church, are you and I so different? Are you different? Am I different than these men, really? We give the religious leaders a hard time. We give the Pharisees a hard time. But here's the thing. I know the things that I've done. And I know the things that I have thought. And if I'm honest, I know the things that I deserve from God. I have given my worship to the wrong things. I have made idols of things in God's creation instead of worshiping my creator. I have lied. I have stole. I have given my time, my thoughts, my mind to the wrong things, to depraved things. I have intentionally chose my way over God's way with my eyes wide open to what I was doing. Have you? See, I know what I deserve. I deserve hell, and I know, I know that I do. I know what I've done. I know what I've thought. I know what I've given my life to. I know what I deserve. Yet God was there in my depravity. He was there with me in that ugliness. He was there in my sin, and he called out to me. He called out to me, listen, it is better that my son dies than all of you die. It's better that my son dies than you die, than that you should perish. How could that be better? Sometimes I can't understand it. How could it be better that the perfect, loving, steadfast, holy, gracious, merciful, holy son of God would die for me? Than for, it'd be better for him to die than me be held accountable for my own sin. Because I know I deserve to be held accountable for it. I know it. Yet God saw me there. And he saw you there. And he called to us despite it all. That is the greatest news in all of creation. Jesus traded his life on the cross so that he could take it all on himself. Your sin, your evil, your depravity, because God thought you were worth the cost. How could that be true? Listen, we talk in general. The Bible talks in general. We talk in general. 
But as I say in life group, I, I want this today to be personal. He thought you were worth the cost. You were worth this kind of cost. How could that be true? It is true. And then Jesus gave you his righteousness and his holiness before the Father so that you might know just how beautiful and beloved you are to the king. You aren't some sinner that he puts up with. He gave you his holiness and righteousness before the Father so you could see how beloved you are to your king. Our God took the ugliest thing ever uttered and turned it into the proclamation of the most beautiful thing ever accomplished. And that's amazing. What, church, what else is more worthy of your worship? What else is more worthy of giving your life to, your whole life? What else can compare to that kind of mercy, to that kind of steadfast love, to that kind of faithfulness? What else can compare to that? So church today, this is it. This is the end. The call today is simple and clear. Our God is worthy of worship. Did you hear that? Our God is worthy of worship. He is worthy of all praise, all glory, all honor. He is worthy of giving our lives to. He is worthy of you looking at every aspect of your life, not separating it out in any way, giving, looking at all of your life and saying, God, I want to give all of my life for your glory, all of my life in worship to you because you are worth it. Because you are worth it. God, show me where I can give all of my, my life to you in worship because I am sinful and depraved and you saved me. But, be, but God, show me where I can give my worship to you because you are holy, holy, holy. That's it, church. Today, I want you to worship your king and give your life and worship to your king because you are sinful and depraved, but he is holy, holy, holy. And he said, you are worth saving.